Anna Pepperato will never forget the first time she watched the Palio horse race on the main square in Siena, Italy. My hair on my arms stood up when that race started. It was incredible. I absolutely fell in love with everything around it. Traveling the Blues Route in the Mississippi Delta can show you some of the worst poverty in America, but it can also show you some of the warmest welcomes. People are very welcoming, very friendly. I mean, you kind of sat down at their dinner table before you even know what's happened. And Erica Lee shares stories of the earliest Asian immigrants to the USA. Some of those hidden stories of long trans-Pacific journeys, of building the Transcontinental Railroad, or of being the first Chinese woman in the United States. Experience the Palio in Siena, road trip with the blues in the Mississippi Delta, and learn the stories of new Americans from Asia. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. His friends couldn't believe that he'd left Manhattan and bought a house in what was literally a rural backwater along the Yazoo River in the Mississippi Delta. Author Richard Grant is back with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us more about his home in Pluto, Mississippi, and to recommend road trip adventures on the nearby blues routes of the Delta. And Erica Lee brings us stories of Asian immigrants to the USA, from the dangers faced by Chinese workers imported back in the 19th century to stories of newcomers arriving in recent decades. That's all in just a bit in the hour ahead. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with a look at one of Italy's top city festivals for the last 800 years. Each summer, my favorite town square in Tuscany becomes home to medieval-style pageantry complete with flag throwers sporting neighborhood colors, horses paraded into churches for a blessing, and fierce rivals exchanging taunts and bets. It all comes to a head twice each summer with a no-holds-barred horse race around the main square in Siena. That's on July 2nd and August 16th. Anna Piperato joins us now to tell us how her whole town is all excited because it's time for another Palio in Siena. Anna, welcome. Thank you, grazie. So how did you end up in Siena of all places? Well, I actually went once when I was in college and I hated it because of all the hills and I had had knee surgery. So I said, I'm never coming back here. (laughs) Then many years later, I started doing uh, a master's and I took a course called Saints and Society. And I fell in love with St. Catherine of Siena because she is a fantastic figure. And then I finished the PhD and I had never done the research in Siena. I was in Rome. So I finally decided that I would write to the universities in Siena and say, hey, I know you're not looking for anyone, but you should hire me. And the University of California did. So for one summer, I was there, and I said, this is great. I'll see both of those horse race things. Uh Uh-huh. And then I found myself in a contrada. So you got caught up in this this contrada. Now, first of all, why were you so enamored with St. Catherine? Well, she was such an extraordinary woman, a 14th century woman, who really basically made the Pope come back from Avignon to Rome. And I thought she was really gutsy. But then she also had a lot of visions, And out of these visions come wonderful art. So I just fell in love with the art dedicated to her. Now, can you just describe what is the palio? Where did it come from and and, and how does it work? Okay, well, the palio is, palio comes from palium, which is Latin for silk banner. That is the prize, but the prize is pride. Many, many Italian cities, well, city-states, had these horse races, but Siena's is still going after more than, well, 800 years more or less, let's say. So it's a horse race, and the different districts of the city compete for this prize, this palium, this silk banner. Mm -hmm. And it's basically just a celebration of the city itself, and saints, of course, as well. And most importantly, in Siena's case, the Virgin Mary. She is the honoree of this race. Hmm. 
You'll find Palio races in other cities like Ferrara, Asti, uh, Torrita di Siena. Some of them are ancient 13th century. Some of them are new 20th century. But Siena's is the only uninterrupted one. Where does it take place and, and how do you gather to watch it and just sort of paint a picture of the, the wide shot of it all? Yes, well, Siena is still a walled city. It's a World Heritage Site. It's beautiful. But right in the very center, the geographical heart of the city, is the Piazza del Campo. So it's the main square, just known simply as the Campo. Mm -hmm. In this Campo, you have the horse race. The, the Palio takes place there twice a year. It used to take place outside the city and finish at the Duomo, but you couldn't mm -hmm. really see the race. So right. Siena says, we've got this amazing piazza that can fit our entire population inside of it. About 55,000 people can be in the Piazza del Campo. Why don't we make the horse race go round there? So if you go to the Piazza del Campo, some of you have been, I'm sure, you look at the Palazzo Publico and she smiles down on you. This or is he's the big smiling. city hall. Yes, the big city hall with a wonderful uh, bell tower. And the start of the race is also the finish of the race. The horses and the jockeys go three times around at breakneck speed. It's really quite poetic that the beginning is the end or the end is the beginning. The first curve is relatively easy, but the big curve of San Martino is where most of the falls take place. And until very recently, 20th century, they had mattresses, actual bed mattresses, to block the horses and protect the jockeys. Now they have the same grade that the NASCAR drivers have, you know, like the Formula Uno car drivers. Uh -huh. They have those special mattresses. We had the same thing in Siena. Okay, no more bed mattresses. No more bed mattresses. <laughs> it was good advertising for that one guy for a long but time. But it's usually, I mean, it's literally like a, just solid people in the whole middle of that square. Solid people in Every the middle. Every balcony is packed with yes. people. I mean, every yes. possible viewing point. Yes. Have you been there actually for this? I have been in the middle uh, many times and I have been lucky enough to be in the stands as well. What's it like? It is indescribable. The first time I saw it, I didn't know very much about the Contrade. I didn't know about the significance. My hair on my arms stood up when that race started. It was incredible. I absolutely fell in love with everything around it. The spike in energy and yes. all the people there and all the history coming together and at the same And all the time. hopes. You can feel the hope. So you're in the piazza. So this isn't a touristy thing. This is the locals no. pouring out for this. Yeah, it is touristy in a way, but when the tourists are in the piazza, I've had to tell people to shut up and sit down and stop taking pictures because this is not a joke. This is real. This is real. The, the sensation when 55,000 people are watching a man with an envelope walk up to the start of the race. Inside of that envelope is the order in which the horses will line up, the different okay. contrade. And all of a sudden, the envelope is opened and all the babies stop crying. The <laughs> everything is silent and you can hear a pin drop. And that's when your hairs stand on end. And they announce where the horses are going to stand. Exactly. Number one, number two, number three. Because the order is very is very important. Because if you're the last one, you're probably not going to win. It's, yeah, because it's a tight little circle. So that must take five or six minutes for the whole race. But the whole race is about a minute and 15 seconds. A minute and 15 it seconds. It is over like that. Yes. And it's worth all of this all of this to do. Yes, because <laughs> you've got the trial races, you know, the nights and the mornings before, you okay, have trial races. Right. And they go slower. I understand there's like literally no rules. There's no holds barred. It, well, what, are the, what are the limits? If you're a, a jockey, what can you do to win? 
You can do anything to win. You can take as many bribes as you want. You can make your own bribes. You ride, we should say that this is a crazy race. Uh, they ride bareback and they are given a whip so they can whip not only their own horse, but each other. And they do do this. The only thing you're not really supposed to do is yank someone off a horse, which is what happened last year. And a jockey actually is standing trial for that because that was rather unorthodox. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Siena and the Palio. Our guest is Anna Piperado, and she's a, a professor of art history who's ended up in Siena, and she's caught up in the excitement of the Palio. It's more than just a, a quick race. There's events leading up to it. And yes. Give me, give me just an overview of the, the schedule relating to one of these Palio races. Well, it's obviously more excited if you're running, but even if you're not running, there are 17 contrade and 10 participants. 17 traditional neighborhoods or yes. historic neighborhoods, and each year 10 of them get to participate. Yes. And then, so the day of the Palio is the 2nd of July, so you obviously have a big dinner the night before, but there's a dinner the night before that, and 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 if you're running, maybe another one before that. Because I've been in Siena during this week, and yes. every night there's things going yes. on. You feel like this is the the climax of the festival, but it, it's all just warm-up. Yes. And, Anna, you were talking about the Contrade. Now, yes. you've adopted Siena as your home, and <laughs> I, uh, as an American, I, I never think of neighborhoods as that big a deal. But in Siena, the, the neighborhood, the Contrade, really is who you are. Yes. So there are 17 Contrade, or districts. All of them have their own constitution and their own elected seat. So there's a president for everyone, a vice president. Everyone has their own parish priest, their own private priest. You are born into the Contrada, or in my case, adopted into it. So the Contrada is with you your entire life. It's more than just, you know, supporting the Seahawks or the Red Sox in You're my like case. You're baptized into this. You this are is, baptized. This it's is a, your family. It is your family, and they are there for you through good and bad. Does that provide some practical value to the community? It really does. And when you go to Siena, you'll feel very safe because the Contrade look out for each so other. They would have standards in their own district exactly. where you're not going to be lawless and things are going to be orderly. Teenagers get upset when they see graffiti on the walls. Isn't that interesting? Now, what is the uh, mascot of your contrada? <laughs> we, I am a lupaiola. I am a she-wolf. You're the she-wolf. So your contrada, and, and do you have a particular contrada that you are uh, rivals with? Oh, yes. Who's that? The porcupine, Listriche. Oh. <laughs> They're very nice people, but on July 2nd and August 16th, we hate them. <laughs> <laughs> so now, uh, how do you show your loyalty to the, the, the she-wolf district? Well, during the palio, you wear your fazzoletto, which is a neck scarf. It's your own personal flag to represent your contrada. And your contrada is the most beautiful thing ever. You wear the colors. Our colors are black and white and orange. And the colors of your rival are ugly and stupid. <laughs> what is the dominant contrada? Is there one district that wins all the time? Ironically, as I studied St. Catherine, her contrada wins the most. Is that and right? And she cared the least about these sorts of celebrations. Isn't that thought-provoking? Yes. So St. Catherine, mm -hmm. beautiful St. Catherine's contrada is the is fastest horse racing, yes. the winner. And... How do you celebrate if you win the race? You celebrate by crying and jumping for joy and drinking for three months straight, basically. Three months straight. <laughs> More or less, yes. Well, I hope that this time around, your Contrada wins. And uh, how long has it been since the She-Wolf has won? The She-Wolf hasn't won since 1989, so we're the... That's a long time. Yes, we are the Contrada that's gone the longest Is without winning. Is there a nickname for the Contrada that never wins? La Nonna, the La grandmother. Nonna. Oh, you're the grandmother. Yes, we are the closest to death. Whoever wins has been reborn. 
So the idea of the Mossa, the start of the race, is also the beginning. The Contrada that hasn't won in the longest amount of time is the grandmother closest to death, while as the Contrada that has won most recently is reborn. And all of its members are also reborn. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Anna Pepperato about the Palio in Siena. Anna, I'm going to be in Siena this year for the Palio. I'm wondering, just in the general chaos and commotion and vibrancy of the whole event, even apart from the race itself, what's one tip you would give me to have the best time while I'm in Siena during the Palio? Well, definitely do your research, know your colors, and make sure you're not wearing the wrong colors in the wrong part of the piazza during the Palio itself. And please remember that the Palio is for the Sienese. Please participate, enjoy, but get out of the way of those celebrating Sienese. So respect the locals who really yes. are going to the mat for this. Exactly. And I'm going to be rooting for the she-wolf, and I'm going to be wearing black and white. Excellent. Thank you so much. We can use all the help we can get. And Anna Pepperetta, I hope you guys win. Oh, Thank please you. bring us luck. Please, please. Grazie. Anna Piperato tells us about the superstitions that her neighbors in Siena believe helped their contrada win the palio. It's in a website extra you'll find with this week's show in the radio section at ricksteves.com. We're at 877-333-RICK, and by email it's radio at ricksteves.com. Get ready to explore the blues roots of the Mississippi Delta. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. U.S. Highway 61 runs from New Orleans north to Minnesota. It has a reputation as the route that the blues musicians took not so many years ago to find fame beyond the juke joints of the Delta. Drive down U.S. Highway 61 between Memphis and Vicksburg, and you'll soon know why it's called the Blues Highway for all the great music that emerged from the region. It's also not far from the home that Richard Grant and his girlfriend bought a few years ago when they decided they needed a change from the pressures of New York City. Richard writes about his new life and the people he's befriended in his book called Dispatches from Pluto, Lost and Found in the Mississippi Delta. And he's back with us on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us more about his life in the Delta and to recommend road trip adventures where you can still find the kind of blues that makes everything feel all right. Richard, hi. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. Now, just to set the scene, tell us... uh, what got into you to go from New York City down to a old plantation house in Swampland? And um, how's the experience been? Yeah, I went down to Pluto, Mississippi for a picnic. And at the time, I was slowly losing my mind in New York City. And I came into this it was just a gorgeous setting with, with kind of cotton fields and uh, cypress swamps and huge old oak trees full of birds and a nice bottle of wine and some fried chicken and I, I just kind of fell in love with the place and found this old plantation home just down the levee road that was for sale for next to nothing and on a sudden whim I bought it and persuaded my girlfriend to move down there with me. <laughs> How long ago was that? That was three years ago. And you're still there? Yeah. Any regrets? Not, not at all, no. No and, regrets. And your girlfriend? It's been wonderful. Is, is your girlfriend just trapped there with your crazy dream or is she into it also? Well, our neighbors have kind of become family. They've taken us in like family. Uh, so it's sort of become very close with this one family, and um, it'd be hard to leave now. So tell me about the neighbors. If you, had a, if you had some reason that everybody had to get together and, and have a party or a meeting or something, what would the community be like? Who is it? Uh, 
there's Aunt Mary, who's 94, and is a kind of, uh, if there was an Olympic event for being like a sweet southern old lady, she'd, she'd probably be a gold medal favorite. And then there's her son, Bobby T, who's a woodcarver. And there's her other son, Louis Thompson, who's a catfish farmer and uh, one of my favorite people on earth. And his wife, Kathy, who's a nurse, labor and delivery nurse. And then there's Martha Foose, who's a cookbook writer and raconteurs, and a few other people. And it doesn't really take, don't really need a big excuse to have a party on on Pluto. Sounds like people know each other. Yeah. And then uh, when you think of, when you sit on your back porch, what do you look out and see? Uh, from the from or the, the, back or the front porch. porch, I don't know. <laughs> well, well, either way, it's um, a big flat expanse of cotton fields bordered by woods and the Yazoo River with a kind of, I can't quite see to the lake on the other side, but the properties between the river and the lake. What kind of wildlife might you encounter if you took a walk? If you took a walk, you would probably see deer, maybe possums, raccoons. If you're very lucky, you might see a bear. There's otters, beavers, um, wild hogs. My dog got gored by a wild hog. So lots of wildlife. and Lots and lots of wildlife, yep. And amazing birds. One of the poorest places uh, in America? Yep, one of the poorest places, one of the poorest counties in America. Also, you know, one of the most dysfunctional counties in America. How so? I mean, the Delta, the Delta is, a, is a mess, you know. It's, it, in one sense, it's like an Amer- American tragedy. Really high unemployment, really poor health. Life expectancy in some counties is, is less than in Tanzania. What's the racial makeup of this uh, gang that gathers together at a party? The racial makeup of that gang is majority white with occasional black visitors. Do people mix it up pretty good, or is it pretty segregated still? It's pretty segregated, but not always. There's a juke joint called Poe Monkeys in Marigold, Mississippi, which is this old sharecropper shack on stilts in a cotton field. And on Thursday nights there... There's a lot of fun to be had, and it's local whites and local blacks and tourists dropping in, and hmm. it's extremely friendly and extremely fun. We got an email from uh, Elise in uh, Carlsbad, California, and she's relating to that. She says, we just took a trip on the Blues Trail in Mississippi. Wanted to go to all the blues clubs and juke joints in the area. We had not been in the deep south before, and it was really a wonderful experience. We were at the Pomunky, that's pictured in Richard's book, quite a memorable place. Also like the town of Clarkston. They call it a crossroads, though that's kind of debatable. I hope they can keep the blues alive in these places as all the old blues players are dying off. What's your take on that, Richard? Is there a threat to the whole blues culture? Yeah, I mean, there, there is. I mean, there are, you know, they've got kind of a, I think he's 15, maybe 16 now. This kid, he's called Christone Kingfish Ingram. And he's a, he's a kind of blues guitar phenomenon who people in Clarksdale kind of hope will sort of spearhead the next generation of blues players but it is kind of uh, the old original guys they are dying out mm-hmm. um, most of them are at least in their 60s mm-hmm. and it seems like every couple of months lose another one and clearly it's an old crowd there's not a young generation eager to fill those yeah you know so the music changes if you're singing about picking cotton and you've never picked cotton right you know, that's a kind of a, it changes the kind of, I, I guess, authenticity of the music. Mm-hmm. It becomes a, a kind of copy of itself. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Richard Grant. His new book is called Dispatches from Pluto, Lost and Found in the Mississippi Delta. Richard, if you're going to get a little change of scenery and you want to go on a road trip, the Blues Highway is right in that area, right? Uh, Route 61? Yeah, Highway 61. What's the what's the attraction Bob, of Highway Didn't Bob 61? Dylan have a song about that too? Yeah, um, yeah I mean, if it's kind of the birthplace of American popular music. So much of it came out of the blues. You know, the Mississippi Delta was ground zero for the, for the blues. So it goes from Memphis to Vicksburg. Uh, if you're a music lover, you want to tune into blues and, and uh, soul, what would be high on your list? Well, you, you definitely want to hit Clarksdale. Clarksdale is, was this fairly struggling town that, that sort of hit upon blues tourism as a kind of tactic to save itself. And if you go to downtown Clarksdale now, there's a blues museum. Uh, Morgan Freeman has a blues club there called Ground Zero. You'll find a juke joint named Reds. You'll find a lot of kind of music stores, T-shirt shops, cafes where you can buy your Robert Johnson macchiato. There's an old cotton gin that they've turned a bunch of shacks and the gin itself into accommodations for tourists. There's lots and lots of live hmm. music. You can see live music, live blues like every night of the week. So in you can Clarksdale. go down to Clarksdale and just expect to find all sorts of impromptu live live blues. Yeah, you know, there's street musicians. Right. There's there's about eight or nine different right. clubs that have li- live music. Well, what's a juke joint actually? A juke joint is kind of, um, I guess it's sort of an informal club that sometimes has music. Okay, so it's a, like it's um, a bar. It's kind of like a bar, yeah. Simple. But uh, sometimes it's just in a house, you know, mm. or a building, and it's pretty stripped down, I guess. Now, you wrote about how you joined a country club, kind of a funky or an eccentric country club, and actually hang out with Morgan Freeman. What's that like? It's fun to fun to play golf with Morgan Freeman and have some have some drinks afterwards. And this country club, the the Bio Bend, you're allowed to carry chainsaws in your golf bag, so if trees get in the way. You can you can chop off offending limbs. <laughs> and they they turned the tennis court into the guy who's in charge of the tennis court thinks that dove hunting is a superior sport to tennis. So he's the tennis court is about ten feet high in weeds, and they hunt doves in it. Country um, club in the Delta. You bring your own bottle. There's a bar, but it doesn't have any booze or a bartender. So I think Morgan kind of enjoys the eccentricity and the the kind of unpretentious nature of it. Is he just another guy there, or is he a sort of a celebrity there? Does he play up the celebrity thing, or does he enjoy just melting in? He's just among his friends there. uh, He gets ribbed, and he's absolutely at home there. So why? He could live anywhere. I mean, he's rich and famous, and he's living in the poorest county in the country, arguably. What's the attraction to him? Have you ever asked him about that? I have asked him about that. Yeah, he just sort of loves Mississippi on a very basic sensory level. He likes the food and the the humidity in the air and the and the scents that the air carries. And he loves to sit down and eat collard greens and listens to a blues band. And he's got like a very fine, large horse property out there. He loves his horses. Hmm. Uh, I guess Mississippi, he says it just feels like home to him more than anywhere else. When people, people, he gets that all the time. Like, you could live anywhere in the world. Why Mississippi? And he says, because I can live anywhere in the world, and this is where I choose to live. In a state that's on the bottom of the list where you want to be on the top, and on the top of the list where you want to be on the bottom. Yep. Yeah, he, <laughs> Morgan does not like the the majority will of the voters here. Right. Now, now is that related to 
that's so delta. I mean, in your neighborhood, I guess people, when, when something is, if they want to remark about something, they say, oh, that's just so delta. What does that mean? Well, I think it, it was originally um, like a marketing slogan for the town of Greenwood, but um, people started using it more sarcastically. Like they, um, they busted a house that was, had a, an impromptu kind of embalming chamber in the front room uh, <laughs> that was un, an unlicensed mortuary in the front room. Oh, that's, that's so, so Delta. De- that's so Delta. That, okay, I get it now. That, what's another example of something that's just so Delta? Police arrested a man for, in a sting operation with video cameras for having sex with show hogs. Um, I don't know if you know what a show hog is, but they're these hogs that they... Um, they really get them primped up, and it's kind of like a beauty pageant for hogs. So they're they're, they're kind of working on their eyelashes and their oh no! So they really are shampoo. putting lipstick on a hog. Well, I don't think they go as far as lipstick, but <laughs> but you know they're definitely blow drying them and sort of polishing their trotters. And oh, you know that it is was just, so it's delta. It's just a little too much for this guy. <laughs> that is so delta. He couldn't restrain but, himself. Okay, let's change the subject. Because um, also in your book, you talk about, uh, in a lot of ways, the Delta is the most American place on earth. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean, sort of free enterprise being a being a kind of sacred thing. And there's a kind of there's a kind of a extrovert sort of swaggering confidence there. Seems very American. So rugged uh, individualism. Know, yeah. It's really poor. Is, is there an edge between the black and the white communities, or is there a sense of let's live uh, peacefully coexisting but not overlapping too much, or we're all no, poor and we're all mixing it up together? No, it's, it's, there's a lot of... Um, I mean, there's structural segregation in the education system, and there's self-segregation between the races, and a lot of racial tension in the air. I mean... It really wasn't that long ago that the civil rights era mm-hmm. took place there, and the Delta was a real battleground for that. And now you've got a curious situation where the Delta is majority black, so most elected officials and public officials are black, but whites still own the power of the land. Whites still own most of the land and have most of the money. There's a lot of racism, there's a lot of racial tension there. But you also see kind of it's, it's full of contradictions. But you see, you see a lot of warm relationships between black and white, not necessarily out in public, but sort of tucked away in the country. Richard Grant writes about settling into life in rural Mississippi and what his neighbors have taught him about himself and about America. That's in his book, Dispatches from Pluto. You'll find more on his website, richardgrant.us. By the way, you can hear more from Richard about moving to the Delta in an earlier appearance on Travel with Rick Steves. Listen to program number 434 in our show archives. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Dates back from February 2016. Now, you're an Englishman from New York City who's really settled in and committed yourself to, to joining that culture, it sounds like. Uh, but if you're just a typical big city tourist coming in and you're going to New Orleans, but you want a little bit of uh, the dose of this Delta culture, 
just let's just close off this interview with some advice from you on what's realistic. How can a trip here be be more than voyeurism? How can I really connect and enjoy the culture, and, and what can I learn from it? Well, I think the thing that will surprise people coming in from outside is just how how friendly people are here, and what will transform it from a voyeuristic trip is just getting to know people, and the people are very welcoming, very friendly. I mean, you kind of sat down at their dinner table before you even know what's happened. Hmm. So, so just, you know, be open to that. Could you go to the same juke joint two time, two nights in a row and, and the second night feel a little more real? I've, I've been to all these juke joints more than twice. Right. Not nowhere else to go. <laughs> but I mean, for a tourist, you know, you're in your hotel. Oh, for a tourist, and you yeah. Feel, I mean, I've gone into some barbecue joints in the Deep South where I just feel like they know I've got my camera and I'm, and I'm just a voyeur. And I, I just can't connect. But I would think if you went to one place one night, no matter how good you are, you're going to be still this gawky guy from far away. But the next night, you might have an advantage. Uh, yeah, I just I just think you run into less of that in the Mississippi Delta than hmm. the rest of the Deep South. I think it's a lot friendlier. Oh, that's great to know. Yeah, I mean, the, people are generally delighted to see a tourist, partly because the place is so starved for money, you know. So the best, uh, w- would Clarksdale be a good good headquarters if they don't want to get your address and crash with you guys? Uh, yeah, just come on down. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Clarksdale would be a good spot. Greenwood is kind of an interesting area. You go see Robert Johnson's grave and you can eat at a wonderful old restaurant called Lusco's that's been there since the 1930s where you eat in these funny little curtained cubicles and the fried chicken is fantastic and it kind of looks like the perfect place to... Nice. Hatch like a stupid murder plot or have an <laughs> ill-advised affair with somebody else's wife. It's it's an American classic. And I would say reading your book, Dispatches from Pluto, would give the visitor an inside track to a better understanding the culture. Richard Grant, thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you. Okay. You can send us a verbal snapshot from your own travels, near or far, in an original haiku poem. The radio section at ricksteves.com has a link for sending us yours. Perhaps these recent examples from our wandering listeners will get you inspired. Deborah Guy from Columbus, Ohio, drove almost 4,000 miles during a two-week Roots Music pilgrimage across the Deep South. She shares this haiku from a meal she enjoyed at the Onward store in Onward, Mississippi. Delta Fine Dining, pulled pork sandwich and salad with comeback dressing. And she adds this haiku about the infamous intersection near Clarksdale, Mississippi, where blues legend Robert Johnson was said to have sold his soul to the devil in exchange for his talent as a blues guitarist. Highway 61, headlights pierce Delta darkness, crossroads at midnight. Larry Berger from Sinks Grove, West Virginia, writes us this haiku about his youthful wanderings. He says his mother called him a migrant vagrant. I went for a walk. Twenty-some-odd years later, I came home again. And Sarah Tuttle of Corvallis, Oregon, writes us a haiku to celebrate the end of her daughter Eliza's year and a half of traveling and working abroad. It's time to come home, dear daughter, world traveler. No more Skype for me. 
Another aspect of the American scene is our identity as a nation of immigrants from all over the world. Immigration is in the genes of our American history, and it's a continuing story in many of our communities today. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, we look into the stories of Asian immigrants to the USA from the first settlers back in the 19th century until today. We're at 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Erica Lee gets to hear the stories of a wide variety of new American citizens. Stories that shed light on what it means to be American. As the director of the Immigration History Research Center at the University of Minnesota, she's been collecting the stories of immigrants and refugees from 19th century laborers to the new citizens that continue to arrive under the provisions created by the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. Her groundbreaking historical book is called The Making of Asian America. It explores the racial and ethnic issues that underlie the debate around welcoming newcomers to the United States today. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share some of the stories she's encountered about immigration to America. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thank you. When we think about immigration reform today, I think it is important to remember that 50 years ago there was sort of a landmark immigration uh, reform act. Can you describe what that is and why it's important? The 1965 Immigration Act, it was signed by President Lyndon Johnson. He took the time and he brought a great number of high-profile politicians to go to Liberty Island and sign the bill there in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty and with Ellis Island in the background. And his message was that while our previous laws were really blatantly discriminatory in terms of which immigrants we allowed in, we would now be reforming our immigration laws so that they would not discriminate on nationality and national um, identity, but to bring in folks according to their family reunification status as well as their professional Mm -hmm. and educational skills. Okay, so we were getting beyond the good stock notion of the 1920s era where we would let in people depending on if we thought their race was top-notch and uh, realizing that was fundamentally racist, just like what was World War II was fought over. And in 1965, deciding to open that up to people who were able to bring skills and work hard in contributing to our society, regardless of what nation they came from? Right. And in fact, the law explicitly prohibited discrimination in the granting of of visas, of immigrant visas. But the result of 1965 was today, where we have the fastest growing uh, part of our immigrant community being Asian, 20 million Asian Americans, and there was relatively few before 1965. Right. So in 1960, Asian Americans were just 1% of the population, but the most recent census statistics point to over 20 million, 6% of the population, and the fastest growing population in the United States. Well, now you've written a fascinating book that takes a hard look at this based on interviews you've had with uh, Asian immigrants, your book, The Making of Asian America. Now, when you compiled this wide-ranging set of uh, personal stories of immigration from Asia, Tell us a little bit about that. Why did you use personal stories, and and what are a couple of memorable ones that illustrate how that's a a very good insight into the whole community? So as a historian, I I think that the best way to engage people in imagining what it was like in the past and in understanding how that past shaped the future, I think the best way to do that is through storytelling and certainly the context and the statistics to back that up. But It's really in uncovering some of those hidden stories of long trans-Pacific journeys of 
struggles building the transcontinental railroad or of being the first Chinese woman in the United States that really bring to light the conditions, the reasons why people came, the struggles that they faced, and um, how they had an impact on American society at the time. So a lot of white Americans like me are steeped in stories of heroic immigrants coming over from tough times in Europe and working hard and helping found a wonderful, strong country like ours. Of course, that's very Eurocentric. Get me up to date. Tell me a few of your favorite stories that came from east to west, from Asia to America, rather than from Europe to America. And there would be some heroes in in those tales as well, but also some tragic stories. So one of my favorite discoveries was this woman named Afong Moi, and she was the first recorded Chinese woman to come to the United States. And she came in 1834, which predates our understanding of the you know massive groups of Chinese who came during the California Gold Rush. Say, so she comes. She's this lone woman. In New York City, she comes on a China trade vessel. So these are the ships that are going out from the Eastern Seaboard to go to China and make their wealth importing fans and furniture and pearls and textiles. And these two New York City businessmen decide that another way they could make money is by bringing over this exotic woman from the East and putting her on display in New York City. So they rent out an exhibit hall. They dress up this showroom with with all of the furniture and other things that they want to sell, and they put her on display for eight hours a day. They charge New York City residents fifty cents to come and basically gawk at her. We know that she represents this idea that China is this place of fascination, the exotic East, which is so different from our America. But we also know that、um, she really faced a. A difficult time. She was basically the property of these、mm. New York City salesmen, and they put her on a tour throughout the United States, and and we lose track of her.、Um, we lose track of her, and we don't know exactly what happened. But this is a story of an early Asian American. You know, one could call her a pioneer,、um, mm-hmm. but she's been lost to history. We're speaking with Erica Lee. Her book is "The Making of Asian America." She's the director of the Immigration History Research Center at the University of Minnesota. Erica, as you read all of these stories of different immigrants and the courage and the hardship that they endured to get here, did you find any sort of common thread, or did you find examples that really distinguish the different Asian cultures and their various、uh, immigration experience? A little bit of both. So, some of the more recent、um, stories we've collected at the Immigration History Research Center. Involve those who had fled war and persecution in Southeast Asia. Their stories are marked by tragedy, by the loss of loved ones, of suffering through war, of sometimes years-long treks through the jungle to escape, and then years in Thai refugee camps before being resettled into the United States. So the refugee stories have a qualitatively different. Tenure than some of the immigrant stories, where people plan, they choose to come. Perhaps they've come with resources. Perhaps they know somebody already here. They really are able to get started on their new lives in the United States with a little bit more of a head start than those who have fled war. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Erica Lee. Her book is "The Making of Asian America." Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. And Diane's on the line from New Mexico. Diane, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. You know, I grew up in the Hawaiian Islands, 
when I was a teenager, it was uh, the time immediately following the Vietnam War. And Hawaii was receiving a lot of immigrants from Southeast Asia in particular. And we have a kind of native tradition in Hawaii of uh, the food truck. And a lot of the Asian immigrants who came over uh, set up either small restaurants or food trucks where they cooked uh, their native foods. And uh, I'll tell you, it was really amazing, the variety of uh, different dishes that we were able to sample as a result of, uh, you know, just going to these new restaurants. And it's true what you say about the hardships that these folks faced because uh, my favorite restaurant turned out to be a Thai restaurant. My favorite dish was something they called Evil Jungle Prince. And uh, Mm -hmm. I will say that the family who owned that restaurant uh, told me about escaping on a boat and then... uh, being picked up off the coast of Vietnam and brought to Hawaii. So uh, they they went through all of that, and they came to this country, and they opened their restaurant. They educated four kids at college, and they had a great success, but it wasn't in the cards from the beginning. It wasn't easy. They had to earn it. No, it wasn't easy for them. But I will say this. Um, the variety of things that they brought with them, the Southeast Asian immigrants uh, introduced me to a whole world of food and years later I was a corporate person for a long time and years later I became a chef and part of the reason I did was because I realized what tremendous uh, variation there was in in the different cultures and in terms of their food and uh, Hmm. it was a real bright spot in my culinary education. Absolutely. I think that what Diane's talking about is a really fascinating example of both the diversity of of Asian American populations, but also the ways in which the arrival of Southeast Asian refugees really sparked this new era in the history of Asian Americans. Many of them were resettled to areas that had not had a very large Asian population. Hawaii is a little bit different, but the Vietnamese went to New Orleans the Hmong went to the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul and have completely, you know, remade the communities here, both with their their food, their culture, historic organizations, and um, have really revitalized certain areas of the cities. Hmm. Diane, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Erica, when we think of Diane's comment about how much fun it was to go to these various food trucks in, in Hawaii, all over the United States, uh, when we think about traveling, we can travel to Asia without leaving the United States. Can you give us a, a few of your favorite travel tips where we can get some vivid cultural experiences by visiting Korean or Filipino or Japanese and Vietnamese communities and so on? So I think obviously San Francisco Chinatown is both the historic center of Chinese America, but remains so with the new immigration. And it's a fascinating place because you can still, and you walk the streets of Grant Avenue, you can still see both old Chinese America, and this is this is the um, community that my family is from, but also new Chinese America, which is not just uh, mainland Chinese, but Taiwanese and from Hong Kong and Singapore. And so the vast amount of food and the diversity of food is is really seen there. My other favorite place is, is New York City, Chinatown, which is right next door to Little Italy, of course, too. And and so the, the mixture of those two historic neighborhoods is, is really a great snapshot into immigrant America and the blending of cultures. 
Well, I'm going to just list a, a nation or a nationality, and I'll let you, just in a little kind of a quick game, tell me in the United States, if I was with you and you were showing me around, where I would get a, a vivid cultural experience relating to that culture, not in San Francisco or New York. So, okay. uh, Korean, I want to learn about Korean culture. What would I do in America? You would go to Los Angeles and you would go to little Koreatown. Um, but the thing with um, new immigration is that unlike previous decades, immigrants are not just confined to uh-huh. one specific area of town, right? So in, right. certainly in the Los Angeles, the Korean community is expanding beyond just L.A., but throughout right. the valley. How about uh, Vietnamese culture? New Orleans, but also Orange County. There's a great new exhibit on the Vietnamese American experience going on there. And Orange County is, has the largest Vietnamese population in the country. Now, I was just up in Juneau in Alaska, and the main square is named after a Filipino. And there's a huge, Fili- relatively huge Filipino community in Juneau. What's the background there? Both old and new, again. So when Filipinos started migrating to the United States, and I use that term deliberately, they were not immigrants because the Philippines was a U.S. colony until mm. uh, World War II. Filipinos worked in the California agricultural sector, they worked in the Pacific Northwest, and in the off-season, they would go up to Alaska where they were working in the salmon canneries, and so processing all of the the fish there. But more recently, Filipinos are arriving in Alaska as ship hands on all of those cruise ships that are going up there. Why are there so many Hong Kong people in Vancouver? because of the relationship of British colonies. So Hong Kong was a British colony until 1997, and there had long been trade routes, but also migration routes for Mm. generations that took people from Hong Kong to Canada. Erica Lees, the director of the Immigration History Research Center at the University of Minnesota. She's written about Chinese immigration during the exclusion era and the Angel Island Immigration Center in San Francisco Bay. Her latest book, The Making of Asian America, has won a number of awards, including one of the 10 Can't Miss History Books of 2015. In the online notes to this week's edition of Travel with Rick Steves, you'll find a link to Erica's website and a link to the Immigrant Stories Digital Storytelling Project. That's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. Amitava from Danville, California writes... I'm an immigrant from India. I came here in 1967 on a student visa, got my Ph.D. in engineering in 73, became a U.S. citizen in 1980, having worked in the IT industry successfully for 40 years and very happy to live in the United States. How can candidates for the uh, United States presidential election be better informed about the real positive value that educated immigrants bring to this country? That's a million-dollar question, I think. One of the things that is happening now in terms of immigration is the concentrated focus on immigration as a bad thing, and particularly the immigration of undocumented immigrants. As Amitabha is saying, the benefits, the contributions of all immigrants, and frankly, including undocumented immigrants, is being lost. So there's a lot of statistics, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of arguments that are being expressed about immigration, good and bad, I would hope that candidates would read widely and not just in the latest study that looks at costs and crime and all of the negative things, but read more widely to look at the longer-term studies. We know that, um, including with, with refugees, that there might be a 
increased output of spending to help integrate immigrants into the United States in the very early years, but that longitudinally, they go on to create businesses that then create jobs, that they are contributing to taxes, as well as the welfare system, the social security system. So I I think we need to encourage candidates to look broadly and think longer term rather than just at the most recent headlines Mm -hmm. and the most attention-grabbing study. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been learning about the making of Asian America with Erica Lee. Erica, I know a lot of the research you've done for your book is available on a website where we can kind of get the intimate connection with some of these uh, amazing stories of immigrants from Asia. Tell us about the website and why we might find that helpful. The Immigration History Research Center has been working with recent immigrants and refugees to tell their own stories and to do it through video and audio and, and photos. And we think that this is the best way to help preserve and share those stories in a way that's really true to that person's experiences. So it's called the Immigrant Stories Digital Storytelling Project. And we started out with just six stories. We now have over 150. They represent 44 different ethnic groups across the spectrum, both old immigrants and new immigrants. What's one personal example that that really brings it home about the the humanity of this amazing story of immigration from Asia? One of my favorite stories is created by a friend and colleague. His name is Sangmini Ratsabout, and he arrived in the United States as a young boy, a young refugee from Laos. And he recalls in his story how his family arrived at the refugee camp in Thailand, but how this arrival was both one of joy, that they were finally safe, but also one of sorrow because they were leaving their homeland perhaps forever. Unlike European immigrants who arrived on boats onto the open arms of Lady Liberty, my family arrived as refugees aboard Northwest Orient Airline Flight number 020. Our journey spanned two and a half years in refugee camps and countless medical exams. I was a four-year-old malnourished child weighing 11.1 kilograms or roughly 24 and a half pounds. The heart and lungs are within normal limits, reads the x-ray, a sign of final approval for entrance to the United States. Much of this history is not well known, let alone taught in classrooms. It was not until college that I became interested in my family's experience and journey. My parents once told me that the day we left Laos, my name was written on the sandy shore of the Mekong River reminding me that Laos will always be a part of me. We continued to pave our path in this land and began to tell our stories in hope to inspire others to tell theirs. Wow. Erica, that's an inspiration. Thank you very much, and thank you for writing The Making of Asian America. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wolner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at Mississippi Public Broadcasting in Jackson and at Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul for studio help this week. Gretchen Strauch read our listener travel haiku. Find more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. 
At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.